sometimes they see the title first and you second. Suddenly, it felt like this barrier, this invisible barrier existed. And I, I felt quite, it was almost like a grief. Like I felt like I'd lost something that I hadn't expected to lose. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast on a mission to raise aspirations and inspire the next generation of category-defining founders. From purpose-led founders to Olympic champions, you'll learn firsthand from today's successful leaders on what it takes to be brilliant, all in just 40 minutes. Today, I'm joined by Simone Maney, the CEO of Elliptic, a fintech helping businesses make the crypto economy a safe place to transact and invest by managing financial crime in crypto. JBM have had the great pleasure of working with Elliptic and Simone on some key senior hires into their team over the last few years. So we know firsthand what a rocket ship it is and what a great culture Simone has helped to create. In today's episode, we're going to dive into the incredible journey that Elliptic's been on, the realities of scaling a team quickly, and how Simone overcame her imposter syndrome to become CEO in an industry she's never worked in before. So Simone, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? Yeah, brilliant to be here, James. I'm really well, thank you. How are you doing? I'm very well. I'm very well indeed. Thank you so much. I've been excited for this. We caught up not too long ago at an event. I had a really good chat and uh, having worked with you and the team for a while, we're big fans of what Elliptic are doing. So I'm very excited to dig into your story and the businesses as well. But before we jump in to that, I would love to start with some quick fire questions like we always do. So if you don't mind, please, can you finish the following sentences after me? My first ever job was? As a retail assistant at Legoland Windsor. Um, So I grew up in, went to school in Windsor, and obviously Legoland's a big fixture there. So it was where a lot of people went for summer work, including me. So yeah, I went back there for a couple of summers. Uh, and actually had a had a really great time. I think that is one of the best answers we've ever had <laughs> to that question. There's lots of paper rounds and uh, all that sort of stuff, but Legoland, I can't think of a more fun place to be. And I am ashamed to admit I've never been, but I'm sure my daughter will be dragging us there soon. And now I know this, I'll definitely yeah, do that. Yeah, I don't think it's going to be long. <laughs> <laughs> okay, brilliance to me means? Brilliance to me means, I think commitment actually uh you know i think there are lots of different aspects to to brilliance but i think there's something amazing when you see someone with just such a high level of commitment and passion for what they're working on or working in and i think that that translates very naturally into brilliance if someone feels you know very connected to what they're doing yeah, I love that. I love that. I think that's so true. I think it's amazing. If you love what you do, and so many people that I speak to hate what they do. <laughs> so many people are coming to us because they want to change. And, and I think um, I think it's so nice when you have people that just genuinely love what they're doing. And I think as a result, often, you know, you're right, brilliance can come from that. I think that's a great answer. A misconception people have about me is? Probably there's a, a misconception that I think I can be maybe a bit of an ice queen, you know, very kind of cool and in control. And actually the reality is often quite different, can be quite different. So, you know, there are times where, you know, I I definitely am sort of portraying that like quite cool, calm, collected and in control persona. But, you know, even, even CEOs have, you know, those moments of doubt and vulnerability and, 
I do feel that sometimes, I, you know, I, I definitely project quite serious because, you know, this feels like a serious thing that we're doing is building a company and it requires a, a serious approach and it requires a lot of focus. But at the same time, you know, it's got to be fun. And so, you know, that's definitely something that I continually have to work on is making sure that I'm balancing the kind of the journey with enjoying the journey is what we talk about at Elliptic quite a lot, actually. But I think if you don't know me super well, you can easily kind of fall into that misconception that she's just like incredibly serious and just focused on work. Oh, well, do you know what? I never got that impression from meeting you. But I, I think it's true that I think sometimes when you have a big role like a CEO role, that, that it's easy for people to make that misconception, especially when you are tackling a very serious problem and it is really important work. So it wouldn't surprise me if other CEOs that come on this podcast say the same thing to be honest with you. Finally, can you share something that we wouldn't learn from your CV that could be a failure, a setback, something that you've learned a lot from? Yeah, well, look, I think it's possible to look at a lot of CVs, including mine, and just say, wow, that person kind of went up and up and up, and they did this thing and the next thing, the next thing, and there's constant progression there. And actually, my experience and my CV has been quite different. You know, there have been a lot of sideways moves, quite a lot of risky moves that could easily have gone differently. And so, you know, I talk to the team all the time about the fact that, like, for me, it has definitely not been a career ladder experience. It's been a career climbing wall experience where you're traversing side to side and trying different routes and maybe that one didn't work and you kind of backtrack a little bit and try something else. And so I think that's definitely been my experience. And you could look at it and put a story on top of it that makes you think that it's all been quite calculated and carefully orchestrated when actually it's more the opposite. Like it's not been a series of accidents, but it's definitely been a series of gut decisions based on what I thought would be interesting rather than necessarily what would result in becoming the CEO. Like that was never a long game aspiration. It was just step by step looking at what do I think is going to be interesting and exciting and purposeful to me at each stage. I love that answer. And I think that's hopefully reassuring for anyone listening to this that might be going on a slightly different path or, you know, going with their gut, maybe taking the odd risk, because I'm a big believer in fate. And I think you, you also make a lot of your own luck. And I think, as you said, if you're stretching yourself and challenging yourself and taking on new and exciting opportunities, sometimes that means going sideways. Sometimes that means going backwards. But, you know, I think it's about fulfillment in role. And I think more often than not, as we said earlier, if you're doing something that you're passionate about and you feel connected to, often that brings your best work and that means you go up the ladder. And I think sometimes that just comes in different forms. You mentioned the, the kind of the, 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 the different path you took. Um, squiggly career is the saying from Helen Tupper, a previous guest. And I think that really nicely sums up that most of our careers are squiggly. They're not this kind of ladder and I think that that is um I really like that in my mind that's kind of how I feel a lot of people are but we don't always talk about it and I think that's a shame so thank you for sharing that I think that is really spot on I really like that phrase the squiggly career and I think when we're in school we're kind of making that progression every year you're going through the exams and it's very linear and then it, it's actually you find out when you start the world of work that it's not like that and um I think we should talk about that more because I think that that gives more people a sense of comfort that they're not doing something wrong. Actually, you know, they should be experimenting and trying different things. And it doesn't matter if it's not always a following a, a linear path. 
So true. So true. And it's kind of the perfect segue before we kind of come on to talk a bit about Elliptic. You have done different things. You started as a, a graduate at Deutsche Bank and I know you spent time in consulting and you didn't start as CEO at Elliptic. You started as COO. So you've done different roles, different industries. I'd love to just briefly explore a bit about some of those different experiences, the different skills you maybe use to make those sorts of different transitions. I, I think that'd be really interesting to dig into. Yeah, sure. And thanks for kind of recapping some of that. So I started at Deutsche, as you said, and I was there for nearly 10 years. And for anyone that's worked in any kind of large corporation, whether it's a bank or otherwise, you know, I think when you're there for that period of time, really, it's a series of jobs in a mini career inside a big bank like that. And, you know, I was very fortunate to be able to move around both different roles, different parts of the bank, as well as geographically. So I worked in in the UK with them, as well as on Wall Street for a period of time and just had, you know, great exposure to lots of different people and challenges. I was there, you know, during the Lehman and the wider banking collapse. And, you know, that was a really challenging time, but learned a huge amount about, you know, how to work and manage through a high degree of volatility and change and uncertainty, which has, you know, served me really well in helping build a startup as well. And so, you know, when I I think about some of those transitions from Deutsche then into consulting, because at that point, I really wanted to get client side, actually, because at Deutsche, I was more focused in internal roles in strategy, operations and finance. So I wanted to transition into consulting because I felt like I would both be good at it and I would really enjoy it. And again, that was following a gut instinct, actually. It was a bit of a risk. A lot of people were like, oh my God, why, you know, you've, you've sort of, or on the career track at Deutsche Bank, like, why are you leaving now? It's like a terrible time to leave. Because a lot of people work really hard to get to a, that certain stage. And that's when you're sort of really starting to make progress. For lots of people, it felt very counterintuitive, but I just really felt very strongly that I needed to do it. I really wanted to do it. And, and so sort of took that chance. And that, was also a great experience and it proved out what I believed. You know, I I did really enjoy being with clients directly and helping them solve their problems. And it was also the thing that gave me my first exposure to the issues around financial crime. And so I was working with banks on helping them look at different and better ways to address their financial crime issues, whether it's using regulatory technology, whether it's, you know, operational processes, And so I really started to get very up close with the fact that actually we weren't solving the problem of financial crime very effectively. We would, you know, banks were doing a lot of work to meet their regulatory compliance obligations, but that isn't necessarily the same thing as stopping financial crime. And that's really where Elliptic kind of comes into the picture. I had a, you know, such a brilliant opportunity to join very early stage business, which is what I was starting to feel like was going to be next for me. I wanted to really get my hands dirty. It's what I love doing. And it seemed like, I, you know, there was not going to be anywhere I was going to be able to do that better than in an early stage business like Elliptic. We were kind of going from C to A, a round when I joined. And it was sitting in that space where I could bring both my traditional financial services experience from Deutsche, as well as my financial crime understanding from consulting to the table, but doing it in a totally new asset class, completely new technological innovation. And that was like really compelling to me. And again, that was a, it was a bit of a gut instinct, you know, you know, I was definitely taking a risk. I think my parents were like, 
So you're going from this kind of quite sensible consulting role to go and work with this tiny company that's basically got no traction in working on this thing called Bitcoin. Like this just, I, yeah, I mean, they looked at me like I had two heads. And like if I think about it now, I'm like, oh, I'm kind of amazed that I did that actually. But at the time, you know, I had really strong conviction about it. And I also figured, what's the worst that could happen, really? So I think it is knowing what you care about. It's courage. It really does require some courage. And it's also that I was really, really compelled by Elliptic's mission. Uh, And it was really, it was hard to ignore that combination of things. Yeah, I can imagine. And uh, look, you've never looked back. It's, you know, your career at Elliptic and Elliptic has uh, gone from strength to strength. I guess for those listening that don't know the business, can you tell us a bit about what Elliptic's mission is and a bit more about kind of what gave you such strong conviction to join? Yeah, absolutely. So at Elliptic, we are big believers in crypto and what it is going to do for the transformation of financial services and as a result, broader societal changes. So, you know, really helping bring about a world where we are freer to transact and interact, safer to do that. And so we at Elliptic specifically want to help facilitate the adoption of crypto faster. And we do that by helping businesses that work in crypto to do it with the confidence that they can do that in a compliant way. So we are providing solutions, advice, support to help them navigate their crypto compliance journey, primarily through data. Like we're essentially a data company. So we aggregate, analyze a lot of data about who is who in crypto. And then we use that insight to help our customers ensure that they're not facilitating any kind of suspicious or illicit activity, which ultimately helps bring about mass adoption. Yeah, amazing. I mean, now Elliptic is a very well-known business. You know, you, you've raised a lot, a lot of money and it's been through this incredible story, which we'll, we'll come on to. But crypto at the time was a totally new world for you. So how did you feel about going into, uh, you know, a new world like that? And, and how did you get up to speed so quickly? And what is a very complex industry, one that I'm still trying to wrap my head around? Yeah, so I was very lucky, I have to say, in that... Elliptic was founded by a really, really good friend of mine. And, you know, I was able to see the very early years of Elliptic's journey and see that, God, what they're doing is is actually really, really, really important. Like it's essential for the longer term growth of crypto. And so I was sort of able to get on board with that conviction very quickly because I was I was able to get very close to it and having that that transparency, that insight into the problem they were solving and how that was resonating with the wider crypto industry was really, really valuable. And and actually, I would take that with me, you know, in the future, if I'm looking at another business in the future, even if I don't have someone that I'm as close to that's inside the business, that's how close I would want to get to understanding what's the problem you're solving what's the mission of the business? Like you really, I think, have to really understand it and also feel very excited by it because, you know, in this kind of role, you're going to give everything you've got. And if you don't feel excited about that, I think that's going to be, that's going to definitely be a, a tough one. Yeah, absolutely. 
Imposter syndrome is something that has come up a lot on this podcast over the years. It's something that clearly affects us all at different points in our career. And I know that you you felt some of that kind of going into this new industry. You know, you've come from consulting to a startup. I guess so many new things, like you said earlier, big risk. Kind of when you look back, it feels crazy, but clearly it's worked out. At the time, like what helped you to overcome that? And what advice do you have for anybody else that might be in a similar kind of feeling a bit out of place? in a new industry, in a new role, potentially, what things could you share with our listeners to, to help get over that and, and, and go on to sort of not just survive, but thrive in a role or a new, new industry? Well, I think the first thing to say is that I don't think I have overcome it, right? Like I, I, I don't know that it is as straightforward as sort of and binary as saying, well, you know, I used to have imposter syndrome and I don't have it anymore. I'm sort of cured. You know, I, I definitely still experience it. I think I have found ways to experience it more positively, let's say. You know, when I joined Elliptic, I was really acutely aware of all of my differences. You know, I joined at a time when the company was all engineers or data scientists, all men, all in the UK. I was actually living in the States at the time. So I joined in the States. I have never looked at or even attempted to write a piece of code in my entire life. And I was definitely a crypto newbie. So I was really conscious of all the ways in which I was inferior or, yeah, just lacking in all of the the skills and knowledge that they all had. And that was a kind of tough place to start. You know, I, I think on several level, you sort of do your best to mask that. But at the same time, I think probably my biggest lesson was using that courage that got me to even taking the role in the first place, taking that further into the first few months and actually just talking about it with the team, just being like, look, I don't know what this means. I don't feel comfortable doing this thing, which is quite scary, actually. And I think testament to the elliptic team for creating an environment where I felt like I could do that. But I do think that it was the ability to be really open, ask all the, you know, newbie questions that actually allowed me to get up the learning curve quickly. I think if I had sort of pretended and bullshitted my way through, almost certainly I would still be doing that now because you pass a certain point where you can ask the basic questions. And so I think it was embracing the fact that I've got all of this newness about me and laying it all out there that, that actually almost acted as a, an accelerator. Mm, I love that. And I think one of the things you touched upon there is kind of this, having the, a culture or the psychological safety to be a newbie and ask those questions that, you know, might have been straightforward to other people, but for you was, you know, it's an important part of your development. And clearly you got up the learning curve quickly and in part probably because of the people around you and the environment that was created where you felt you could do that. I'd love to just chat a bit about culture because having placed a, a number of people into Elliptic, we know it's a great place to work, that people want to be, clearly a very aligned mission. So can you just tell us a bit about that and, and I guess kind of why it's so unique? I guess we'll probably played a part in why you've been there for over six years yeah well look I'm really glad that you know that's your impression and the impression of the people that you've been placing with us it's something that we're all really really proud of we work really hard on it you know we by no means get it right all of the time but it's something that we care a lot about because 
you know, the environment that people work in just means so much to them on a personal level, means so much on a team level, on the, on the ability of the team to be working effectively together in alignment and harmony together. So yeah, it's something that we spend a lot of time on. And I, I think, you know, from the very early days, as I said, there was something very special about the environment and the culture at Elliptic, particularly around being very inclusive of all types of experience and knowledge levels. And, you know, that I think has continued to this day. We're often asked when people come and interview with us, you know, but I don't know about crypto or do I need to know about crypto? And 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 really you you don't. What you do need is a real sense of curiosity. I think everyone in crypto needs a real sense of curiosity because this space is just moving so quickly. You know, you know, what I learned, you know, over the last six years at certain points becomes kind of irrelevant because it, there's just new things to learn all the time. So you've got to be curious. And I think you've also got to have a high degree of humility, right? You've got to recognize, I don't know everything. And I think that's another thing that we work really hard on cultivating an elliptic is a space where you can, as I experienced in the early days, keep coming to the table and saying, well, actually, I don't know what that is, or I don't understand that, and I need some help. And that in turn creates an opportunity for your colleagues to show off what they know, which is also a really nice thing, is that people can demonstrate their knowledge and and their skills and you create space for them to do that. So, you know, if I think just specifically about imposter syndrome, you know, I think creating that psychological safety is, is crucial. We have a celebration of failure at the end of every quarter. And that might seem a bit counterintuitive, but there's a bit of a a company-wide Slack thread and hashtag that we use at the end of every quarter where everyone gets to post their biggest failure and learning of the quarter. And it, you know, little things like that, hopefully create an environment where it's clear to everyone that, that failure is just part of growth and we should celebrate it, provided we're learning from it. You know, failure for failure's sake is is waste, but failure plus learning is growth. And that's really so fundamental to what we're doing. Couldn't agree more. Such an important point and a fundamental thing you have to get used to in startup life. So, you know, it's not all going to be uh, plain sailing and there are lots of bumps along the way. But as long as you're learning from them and have that great mindset, you know, you'll hopefully come out the other side of that stronger for it. I really hope you're enjoying today's episode so far. But before we continue hearing from today's mentor, I wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to our series sponsors, Alchemist. Alchemist is an industry-leading learning and development company using immersive and interactive experiences to help increase employee engagement, levels of happiness, and achievement across your teams and overall productivity. Alchemist presents L&D departments with an opportunity to innovate and be bold in their approaches to blended learning. If you love the sound of this as much as we do here at JBM, then head over to thisisalchemist.com forward slash 40-minute mentor to learn more. And now back to our 40 minute mentor. One of the things that COOs have a big part to play in, as you clearly have done, is is around shaping and evolving cultures. That's obviously a big part of the role. And I guess this, alongside many other reasons, I think is one of the reasons why becoming a COO 
is increasingly becoming a very aspirational role. You're typically the number two to the CEO or founder. You, you, you know, it's a cross-functional role. There's a, a real opportunity to have a big impact on the business. And I had heard before you became CEO, you were heralded as you know a, a, a top-class COO who clearly had a big part to play in this. Um, you know, this story, what skills and qualities do you think make a great COO? And the reason I ask this is that we get a lot of people calling us every day wanting to become a COO. And I know there are lots of people listening to this that have that aspiration. So I feel that it will be remiss of me not to ask you because I I, I know you are a very, very good one. So um, yeah, we'd love your thoughts on that. Oh, well, that's really sweet. Thank you. So probably just starting off with a quick caveat. There are lots of different types of COO as you will well know, right, there's no sort of one standardized definition of what COO is, particularly in kind of fintech startup and scale-ups. When I was the COO, I owned both the internal business operations, you know, ops, people finance, as well as external facing go-to-market. And so that was a very particular combination of functions and that will be different in other businesses. Having said that, I think there are some things which are common to you know the skills and qualities that I think are really important. I think first and foremost is probably flexibility. You know, you you are not going to know where you're going to be needed, what you're going to be working on, where you're going to be able to have the biggest impact necessarily, well, from one week to the next. And for me, actually, that's you know a huge part of what makes it such a brilliant role. Like I, I love that about it. I get bored quite quickly. So, you know, the the variety, the unpredictability for me was a was actually something that I really valued. But if that's not kind of part of your DNA, then I think that is a tough one because it often is about putting out fires, and you can't always know where those fires are going to be. And then I think very, very close second is recognizing that a lot of the time in the COO role, you will have a sort of weird lack of ownership for any one thing, because actually what you're doing is gluing lots of things together, which means that you're not necessarily responsible for the successful delivery of a thing. You're there to help put the right people in the right room and eliminate the blockers to help them deliver the thing. And so that often translates to the fact that you are going to be facilitating a lot of progress, but not getting any of the credit or the recognition. And this, I think, can sometimes be quite hard and it can be quite surprising for people that kind of move into the COO role is that you're working your butt off and actually no one knows what your role was in it at the end or you, you, you're not getting the credit at the end. And so kind of rewiring your mind a little bit to say, I get my satisfaction from the fact that it was done rather than the fact that I was recognized for doing it like, is actually really important. There's a long, long list of skills and qualities, but I think those are kind of two really fundamental ones from my perspective. No, that's very true. And I, I would completely agree from, from my experience of working with so many COAs. I think what's interesting is there's also a lot of COAs that are always happy to stay a COO and, and like love it and, and 
don't have any aspiration for the top job. And then there are other COOs that see that as a pathway to CEO. You are were, were the latter. You ultimately, so after three years, the COO took over the, the top job. And there's always, like I guess, added pressure that comes with, with stepping up from internally, whether that's in you know investors whether it's clients whether it's your team you know seeing you in a different light all of a sudden is a change so and i think that's particularly true if it's a if you're a first time ceo which which you were so i guess how did you deal with that added scrutiny and i guess it would be lovely just to understand just for anyone else that might be in a similar situation like do you mind telling us a bit about some of the biggest challenges you've had to face and i guess as a result of that the biggest learnings for you as a first time ceo because i think i'm sure there's some others listening that would probably take great comfort to know that that they're not alone yeah so i mean maybe starting with probably the biggest learning which also probably will sound so obvious it's ridiculous but i think probably naively i hadn't fully anticipated it which is that it's really different like it's really different you know i felt like you know, I've been here at Elliptic for four years. I've been part of every aspect of building this business. I've been working side by side with the founders and I've been running all the biz ops and the go-to-market functions. And I've seen all of their, that there is to see in Elliptic. And actually, I don't think, despite all of that, you can't necessarily be prepared for the, for how different it is to sit in the CEO seat. And so I kind of look back now with, with like, much, much deeper respect than I ever could have had had I not sat here for James, who's one of our co-founders, was our first CEO and is very, very good friend of mine and is still very much part of the business. But I look back on on his tenure and think how much respect and admiration I have for that because it's very different when you are in that seat. You are the one that is accountable to the team. You're accountable to your investors you're on the hook with your customers and ultimately it's down to you and that sense of personal responsibility just takes up goes up like a notch overnight and I I hadn't really anticipated that because I already felt so responsible and and like I had such a deep care for elliptic that I didn't really understand that how it could be different but it it does feel different and then I think the other big difference and Probably one of the biggest challenges for me on a personal level, actually, has been that the team will treat you differently. And I think that's not so much about me as a person, but it's about the role. And it's it's taken me a while to kind of separate those two things because I was kind of like, well, guys, I'm, I'm the same person I was last week. Like nothing's changed there. Like you can still talk to me in the same way. I'm still as accessible as I ever was. But sometimes they see the title first and you second or at least that's my feel of it and I I found that transition really hard because one of the things that I love most about being in a business like this at the scale that we are is that you can have these incredible personal connections with the people you work with which is very different from other places that I've worked and I get so much satisfaction from that that suddenly it felt like this barrier, this invisible barrier existed. And I, I felt quite, it was almost like a grief. Like I felt like I'd lost something that I hadn't expected to lose. And, and so I would like to think I've caught some of that back up, but it, it, there's always going to be this, this, this sort of element of kind of, of distance there, I think. Yeah, you, because you come with, as a person and as a, 
as a as a role now and you know I, I have to be much more conscious of what I say I have to be conscious of whether I spitball an idea because me spitballing an idea doesn't work anymore because if I do that it will more often than not be translated as an instruction and it it's rarely an, like if there's an instruction I try to be very explicit but even when it's just brainstorming something it's often then suddenly I find out two weeks later that people have gone off and done this thing and I'm like no no no, no. like that <laughs> we launched the new product <laughs> yeah yeah exactly so I, I've learned I have to be quite careful in my communication um around things like that which is just different yeah I really appreciate your honesty around that and I think it's it's important. It's important to hear it, the reality and, and some of the, it's not necessarily a downside, but it's a shift. It's a change. And I think if there are CEOs listening to this, looking to step up or anybody looking to become a CEO, it's a different role with different expectations. And maybe some of the things you loved about your previous role are harder to do uh, in the top job. And I guess also you're going to make decisions that mean in certain ways, being as close to people as you might have been can be difficult because you're making hard calls regularly, which sometimes impact people. And that's stressful, I guess, a difficult part of the job. I was just going to say about challenges you've been through in the CEO job, anything particularly you'd highlight? Yeah, I mean, loads, obviously. It's a, it's a constant challenge in lots of different ways. I think there is that kind of team dynamic that I've talked about already. And that's something that I spend quite a lot of time thinking about and working on I think also when you're a first-time CEO and I had not fundraised myself before I'd supported James with our series B but doing it yourself you know being on the front line pitching closing around and also just working with your investors treating them like your customers you know that was all new to me I hadn't had that exposure before and I also you know I raised our series c with huge support from our team last year while I was pregnant as well so that was like this whole other dynamic that was quite tough because you know for me physically it was a tough pregnancy and so you're sort of on zoom you know three four pitches a day sort of this like real focus and putting all your energy into this and then sort of as soon as the zoom calls finished you're sort of okay like deflate a little bit try to reinflate before the next one and so in a weird way I was a real beneficiary of COVID in that last year it was possible to do it all by Zoom like I didn't have to be getting on planes to the to New York or San Francisco and so that made it a lot easier I mean I think just one other thing I would say on the question of challenge and also just thinking about that CEO COO to CEO transition you know there's this very common saying that you know it's lonely at the top right like you hear it all the time you read it in 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 lots of books uh and actually there is something to it because as i said you know that there is nothing like really being the ultimate responsible person but at the same time it doesn't have to be lonely it's probably one of the things that i've learned over the last couple of years it doesn't have to be lonely if you accept that you're going to need help and support and that's been quite a big thing for me is to kind of really accept that I can be better if I am open and honest about the fact that I'm doing this for the first time it's it's okay to ask for and accept support And, and and then you know after that is figuring out what your support team is going to look like and so I've been really lucky to have lots of people 
around me that have been incredibly supportive. You know, James is a, a really important person to have alongside me. Obviously, he's a founder and was the first CEO of Elliptic and he's been through it and he gets it. You know, when I'm having a tough day, like he really gets it better than anyone. We've also got an amazing chairman uh, and that was a that was an early decision to bring on a chairman when I became the CEO. I really wanted a chairman who had been a founder and CEO themselves and had sat in the seat and would be able to really empathize with the challenges and coach from a you know, a, a position of experience. And that has been really important to me. So yeah, you can do things to sort of address that belief that it's lonely at the top. I sort of dispute that a little bit, really, from my experience. Yeah, a lot, a lot of it's about having the right people around you and knowing, being vulnerable at times to ask for help. And I think that's true in many roles, but particularly of a, a CEO role where there's so much pressure. So I think that's, it's great you have that around you. And, and it, it, it's clearly, clearly gone wonderfully well. Uh, we know that Elliptic's been on this, you know, real hyper growth journey in the last few years. You've raised your Series B, your Series C. Can you just give up a few snippet highlights for you from your perspective of the last few years? And just, I guess, I, I know we are now going into a slightly different phase. So perhaps if you can share a couple of highlights and then maybe tell us a bit about where you're at now and why this sort of shift in pace is, is quite important uh, for the business. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we raised our Series C last October and that was a really important moment for the company in terms of getting, you know, that further investment, but also reinforcement that what we're doing is important, that we are, you know, we are a market leader in what we're doing. And, and, you know, we've got some amazing people that believe in us, which was really exciting. And coming off the back of that was was definitely a, a bit of a growth spurt for us. So, you know, we've added over 100 people this year. And so for us, you know, lots of companies do a lot more scale than that. But for us, that that has been a lot. And doing that in a way where we continue to have a really strong culture is really important, you know, to trying to be thoughtful about that and making sure that that type of growth doesn't sort of break things. Um, slow things down. So yeah, we've had a lot of focus on that. So yeah, the company's really transformed in the last 12 months. We've got a lot more leadership in the US now. So, you know, we are a global company. We always have been. We've got people in the UK, across the US, and also in Singapore. But distributing more of the team, more of the leadership obviously comes with new challenges as well. So yeah, lots of change for us. I think we're we're really focused now on now that we've had this period of growth and investment how do we just make sure that we're really kind of working incredibly harmoniously so we can really work at, at pace together because while you're as you will know very well like while you're focused so much on growing the team you have to stop focusing on some other things. Like it's just not possible to keep all the plates spinning. So you shift your focus from one thing to another. And so now we're kind of refocusing on things like evolving and strengthening our culture and making sure that it's what it needs to be in 2022. Because, you know, when when we last like really, really looked at this, it was kind of 2018, the world was really different. We were a much smaller company. We were in the office, totally different type of environment. So, Things like looking at that, things like making sure that as we've grown a lot, we are really challenging ourselves on, did we get the org design right? 
because it can be really hard to do that in the moment while you are building. So, you know, taking those moments to reflect, did we get things like the org design right? Have we got our customer support model right? Is it what they need? Also, you know, making sure that constantly you're looking up and out. Where are the opportunities in the industry that maybe while we've been really focused on growing the business, we haven't been giving as much attention to what's on the horizon. So, yeah, it's a... It's just a shift in focus, certainly not a shift in pace. I think the team would certainly say that there's no change in the shift, uh, change in pace. It's as intense as it's ever been. But the things that we're focused on are a bit different. And, you know, I should also mention that one of the things that we're working on a lot at the moment is people development. Because as we've grown the team, we've we've grown a lot of people internally, which I'm really, really proud of. You know, I think that's so important for a business like ours to invest in in people. And, you know, people that bet on us in the early days, right, and came and built their careers with us and, and continuing to give them opportunities to develop. But you've got to put time into those things. They don't just happen overnight. You've got to really give people opportunities to develop their skills both more formal training as well as like actual real life experiences. And, and so it's, it's just, you know, shifting the focus. Love that. Yeah. That people focus is, is such an important thing. And I think it, it, it's great to hear, obviously you hear about growth at all costs all the time and we know it's a different climate we're in now. And so I think kind of being, being a, taking, not slowing down, but being quite deliberate in wearing your, where you're focusing your attention and, and investing even more so in the culture and development of people is something that I think will be music to many people's ears because I think it's it's something that sometimes gets forgotten or put to one side uh, as companies scale and as a result you know attrition happens so it's 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 awesome to hear a CEO talking about that being a priority at this stage of the journey we're sadly close to the end but uh, I I really wanted to just talk a little bit more about crypto uh, because we're going to have some fans uh, I'm sure listening to this one thing that I feel I have to ask you um, you know you are a female CEO you're a CEO a fantastic CEO in your own right whether you're male or female but it is a heavily male-dominated industry, crypto. So you are, I would imagine, one of few, sadly. And so there's still a lot of work that needs to be done. We know across the broader industry, but crypto particularly is not the most diverse place from what I can see. So what are your thoughts on how we can level the playing field a bit? Are there any particular initiatives that you're running at Elliptic to attract more diverse talent into the industry? Yeah, it's a great question. Uh, and I think there are numerous aspects of diversity that I think we want to be working on in, in crypto. You know, we have an opportunity to do better here than we have done in traditional financial services, frankly. And, you know, we should all be thinking about how we can make sure that this kind of next generation of finance is going to be different. It is hard because pipelines are many, many years and decks actually decades in the making, right, in terms of getting diverse individuals, you know, interested in different different aspects of, of what they might be able to do in the future. A first thing, like just from a very personal experience, first of all, you don't need to be a computer scientist, data scientist, mathematician to find opportunities in crypto. I did a degree in history. So look, I know it seems a bit improbable that someone that did a history degree could end up running a crypto company, but they can. And and so, you know, I think it's important that we talk about that and that people recognize that there are tons of opportunities to 
come and work in the crypto industry, you know, whether it's in people and talent or marketing or kind of more on the software engineering side. You know, we're running an amazing partnership at the moment with the School of Code, where we have got folks joining us that are from diverse backgrounds with have also come from all walks of life. And and so they they haven't necessarily come from software engineering or or generally just STEM backgrounds. So, you know, there are things like that we can do to disrupt the pipeline issue. And we are working on those. And then I think, honestly, people that are in crypto that come from diverse backgrounds or just have a, you know, a different point of view, like we have to put ourselves out there as role models because, that's the only way to sort of show others that we're doing it and give them confidence that that we can do it. And then, you know, at Elliptic, we're doing other very specific things. So we have an education product that helps people learn about crypto. And actually, we have a scholarship program so that if you come from a diverse background, you can get access to that for free. So I'm really proud of the work that we do on things like that and make sure that crypto and crypto compliance in particular will have diversity in its ranks and there are little things we can do like that that's fantastic to hear and and as you mentioned crypto and crypto compliance is something that people should be aspiring to work in it's such an interesting ever-evolving uh, industry as our final question before our wrap-up questions what are the major changes do you see coming down the line in crypto over the next few years that anyone listening to this that's thinking ah i want to get involved in this what, what have they got to look forward to or what is the potential Oh, well, the potential, it's hard really to put your finger on it, because if I think about the last six years, there are things happening in crypto today, which I never could have anticipated. And so from that perspective, I feel really, really positive about, you know, what's going to be happening in the next six years, things that we can't even imagine, you know, whenever I'm asked for like three or five year predictions, I'm, like, I'm just not even going to entertain that conversation, because it's just it's moving so quickly it's just too hard to anticipate you know i think in the same way as the in the early days of the internet because we're still in the early days of crypto don't forget right in the early days of the internet we didn't know we were going to use it for netflix and instagram right and in the same way we don't know really what we're going to be using crypto for i think what we we will hopefully start seeing is that actually the concept of crypto starts moving into the background in the same way as we don't consciously necessarily think of using the internet protocol, right? It's part of daily life. And so that's really where we want to get to, that it's so easy to interact with. It's embedded in how we go about our daily lives, that it's just facilitating movement of funds and exchange of value, whether that's monetary assets or things like NFTs, in a way that's so seamless that we're we're all participating in it. That's really the journey that we're on. Very exciting. Thank you so much, Simone. Well, sadly, we're at the end of the uh, podcast, but it's been a fascinating chat. Really excited. I'm feeling excited about the future of crypto and uh, the opportunities there for people listening. So uh, I'm sure our listeners will be too. But we always like to close the podcast with some uh, quick, quick final questions. So in one sentence, what do you think the future holds for Elliptic? Well, look, we've built an incredible company already. We've got huge assets to our name. And and so there's a lot of potential for us to to go out there and make a reality. I I think, you know, for us, we really want every data-led decision in crypto to be powered by Elliptic's data. So we're thinking about, in the future, going beyond compliance. So, yeah, 
definitely look out for us there. Amazing, amazing. And if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive, who would it be and why? I don't know. Maybe this is a bit of a cop-out answer, James, but I think I've had a great privilege to be mentored by some amazing people around me already, right? And and, and so for me, I guess I, my great wish is to keep those people close to me throughout the rest of my career, right? Whether they're people that I worked for very early stages of my career, people that are around me now, you know, that it's sort of almost creating, curating that board of directors and keeping them with me through the the future stages. So I think that sometimes can be overlooked as the great people that you've, you've got with you today. To answer your question directly, probably there's one person, it wouldn't be in the business world, it would be my grandfather. So just someone that I really feel like was an amazing human being and would be a, a mentor, not on how to build a great business, but just how to be a great person. And so, um, yeah, someone who's sadly not with us anymore, but that's probably who I would choose. Oh, that's a lovely answer. And finally, what is the best piece of advice that you've ever received that you'd like to pass on to our listeners? Yeah, so maybe not, you know, super profound piece of advice, but it really did unlock something for me. And it's when one of my first managers at Deutsche Bank told me, when I take you to a meeting, I expect you to use your voice. You're not coming there to sort of be the person sitting quietly in the corner or taking notes. Like I expect you, if you've got something to say, say it. If you've got a question to ask, ask it. And it really did flip a switch for me, which was that I didn't need to wait for permission and that I was there to contribute. And that has always stayed with me and that, you know, I would really encourage people to to embrace that idea as well. Love that advice. Such a great place to end our conversation, Simone. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm very excited for you for the rest of the year and beyond. It sounds like it's going to be a, a fantastic few months ahead for Elliptic. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for, for coming along to Forty Mentor and sharing your story. I really enjoyed it. Love talking to you today, James. Thank you so much for the chat. I'm a little bit biased as I've had the pleasure of working with Simone and her team at Elliptic, but I really enjoy getting to know her a bit better over the course of this interview and really benefited from the mentorship she shared with us today. I'd love to hear what your favourite part of the episode is, so please do leave us a review on your favourite podcast platforms to let us know what you think. And don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss next week's episode when I'm joined by James Lowe, co-founder and CEO of Mana the app designed to help everyone make a living by sharing their passions. James is one of my favorite people who have had the great pleasure of getting to know over the last six months. And this episode is not going to disappoint. Here's a little preview of what we talked about. I've been rejected by 130 VC funds in fundraising (laughs) so far. I have been rejected by at least 50 jobs, uh, if I count only the ones that I went through to the interview. And I've been rejected by every ideal university I imagined I would want to go to when I was younger. I think we had 700 people sign up before the platform came out, mostly because we we were hyping it up on LinkedIn. And then the second month, we had like 300 users. And then the third month, we had like 200. (laughs) Dropping precipitously. So we were like, okay, this is not going to work. We probably have to pivot a bit. The only real policy here is transparency. I think it's incredibly dangerous to be pondering a pivot and not let the team know that and let them continue building and building and building and building and then suddenly jump in and go, I've decided to pivot to this whole new thing. Sorry, guys, let's let's go. It's an industry that's incentivized 
to, for lack of a better term, F over founders, right? Because their, their entire you know, financial structure is to basically optimize for the small number of wins instead of the, the long tail and helping them succeed, right? And so it really is to F over most of the founders and hope that one or two of them become successful and double down on them. That's the real financial structure. But who then say to every founder, they're founders first, which I don't believe they can be, even if they try to.